0: to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, so we're going to dive into the book of Hebrews here, and we're going to close out chapter 2 today, which is all, these closing verses, 9 through 18, are all about Jesus' humanity, and why why did he have to become a man? It's a really important. It's not a trivial issue, actually, really, when you study it from the Bible's point of view, cover to cover, that Jesus had to become a man for us on our behalf. And so before we dive in, just a couple of those overview slides that I always like to go through at the beginning, just to reset everybody on why the book of Hebrews. So First John two twenty seven and through 28, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is a, it and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And that's really the goal of of the whole book of Hebrews is to not be ashamed, not be ashamed of Jesus when he appears. To stop from drifting. Remember two weeks ago, we looked at the first warning in the book of Hebrews to stop the danger of drifting. Do not drift from the Lord. And so to have confidence. And it ties right into the mission statement that Jesus gave New City to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride for Jesus's return. So it's an amazing point that the Lord would have us cling on to him and dive deep into his word so that you don't drift. That's the point. The danger of drifting is that as you start to let go of his word, you could start to drift away, and that's part of the issue. So you want to make sure you're in his word every day. Okay, this divine outline of of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the new and superior deliverer. Those are the first seven chapters, and when you break that down, It's a God-man better than the angels in chapters 1 and 2. So we're going to finish that first section today. And then next week we'll pick up a deliverer better than Moses. And remember, God is building the whole case through the book of Hebrews on three pillars that Jesus is superior than the three pillars of Judaism. Moses, the Levitical priesthood, and um, the sacrifices. So that whole thing, he's better than the temple, he's better than sacrifices, he's better... Than Moses he's a better conqueror than Joshua he goes down this whole list throughout the book of Hebrews and these five warnings in the book to the believers to us the danger of drifting so we started that in in chapter 2 two weeks ago and went through that next time we might pick up it'll probably be two weeks from now we'll pick up the second warning the danger of hardening the heart and then there's the danger of failing to mature the danger of willful sin and then finally, the danger of refusing. So each warning is building off the previous ones, which ultimately culminates with apostasy. So if, you, if, you don't, if you're not aware of drifting, you'll start to get so far that your heart is hardened. You'll fail to mature. You'll commit willful sin. You'll justify it in all kinds of ways. And then you'll just simply refuse the Lord. And finally, it's apostasy. So that's, that's the warning, the breakdown throughout the entire book of Hebrews. So these warnings are in place because God is longing for, obviously, deep relationship. And in this first warning, God's sounding that alarm not to drift. So it's to stay steadfast. That's what we looked at. You've got to stay steadfast. And Jesus, why do you need to stay steadfast? Well, the point is because Jesus is going to set up a kingdom. And the question is, will you stay steadfast and go into a greater inheritance Of faithful service, or will you start to drift away and lose what you have stored up for you in heaven, in the future kingdom? I love these passages right here in 1 Corinthians 15, because this is the central theme of the entire Bible, is the kingdom. So the whole Bible speaks of a man in Jesus, Psalms 40 verse 7, in the volume of the book it's written of me, but it's pointing toward the whole thing from all the way from the beginning, is pointing toward a time that that man sets up a kingdom for the Father. That's the point. It's a central theme from cover to cover. So in Revelation 3.11, Jesus is pleading with us to stay steadfast. If you remember this from almost a year ago now, probably. Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. And Jesus is saying right there in that, that you have something that you could lose. You have something in store that can be lost, and it's not your salvation. He's saying, hold that crown, stay steadfast, keep pressing on to your inheritance in the kingdom. So let's start, Randy and I were talking about this. You know, we've, Hebrews uh, chapter two, we've, this would be the third week that we've been in this book. And as we've been breaking down these verses kind of one by one and going through them, I wanna make sure you all have the context of the, the whole chapter So what I wanted to do is just start out and read chapter 2. Read Hebrews 2 real quick. It's not that long, 18 verses, just to give you a a feel for the whole. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. So there's that first warning of the five in the book of Hebrews in verse 1. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast in every transgression And disobedience received a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost. Think all the way back to Acts 2. According to his own will, for unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come. Remember, when we study that, the world to come is the inhabited world of the kingdom. It's not the cosmos in the Greek. The cosmos is who God died for, all the people of the world. The, this word in the Greek is the inhabited world to come. Okay. God also bearing the wisdom of both the signs and wonders and diverse miracles, Holy Ghost according to his own will, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man? And this is all a quote from Psalm 8, that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that thou visitest him. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. And remember, that little lower is for a time. It has to do with a short period of time, not in rank. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, And did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. And remember, we talked a lot about Jesus will rule and reign, everything will be put under his feet. But he's saying here in Hebrews, the Holy Spirit is saying, But not yet. It's coming, but not yet. And that's, of course, what we studied in depth throughout the book of Revelation. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings." For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Praise God, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted he is able to secure them that are tempted i guess you could just almost stop there you don't even you guys got all of that right it's it's amazing just to read through it how powerful that chapter is so we're going to pick it up in verse 9 today and Hebrews, Hebrews 2.9 starts out, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So why was, here in this one verse, why was Jesus temporarily placed lower than the angels? It's in order that he could die. So remember, God and angels cannot die. So Jesus, being fully God, had to be fully man for a season so that he could die on our behalf. That's the point that the Holy Spirit's making here in verse 9, because he could die as fully man, he was crowned with glory and honor. You know, I think we'll probably spend an eternity trying to figure out what does it mean for the one that spoke us into an existence, the immortal everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting, the alpha and the omega. beginning and the end, the first and the last. What did it mean for him to become a man for all eternity, to step down and to really clothe himself in humanity? Because he's not a man just for 33 years. Right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven, there is a man sitting and waiting to take over his kingdom on the earth, and his name's Jesus. And his death was foretold in Matthew 16, 21, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. It's amazing when you really study the gospels how the only ones that got it were the women. Remember all the disciples, all these men totally missed it. Jesus, what are you talking about? Why do you have to go die? And all the women are going, yeah, he's, read the old testament he's got to go die and then he'll be resurrected after 3 days it's it's amazing how how the women always got it and the men missed it somehow but his glory was also foretold in John 17 and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them that they may be one now John 17 is it's really what should we should call the lord's prayer you know a lot of people call the lord's prayer the our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Like that, that's really a model prayer for us. The Lord's prayer, Jesus' prayer, really is John 17. And later on in the slides, we're going to read through that. It is one of the most intimate prayers between Jesus and the Father. And it's his prayer for us, which is incredible as our high priest. But the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. That should remind you of John 14 when Jesus is talking to them in the upper room. I go to prepare a place for you, and where I go, there I should bring you with me so that you can be with me forever forever. He goes through that whole dialogue, speaking of the new Jerusalem, the namesake of this church, the new city, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So it's a really cool prayer. So when you look at verse 9 here, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. His death was foretold in Matthew 16, and he's crowned with glory and honor. So his glory was foretold also in John 17 because he died And was resurrected, the sacrifice was complete and accepted. So thus he's crowned with glory, which is incredible. Now, the end of verse 9 is one of the coolest, I think, passages in the Bible. It should give you complete confidence in what you're doing as a believer in God, in that he tasted death for every man. So that's a that is a bold statement from God that he tasted death for every man. And when you break this down, there are some beliefs in the churches out there that Jesus did not die for everybody. And I'm here to tell you, and I want you just to look at this with me with an open mind throughout the Bible. Look at verse 9. He tasted death for every man. You are included in that whether you are saved or not. And, and when I was praying about this years ago, it was probably about six years ago now, or it maybe five years ago now, the Holy Spirit really impressed on me because I, I was having a, not a debate, but a discussion with a good friend about Calvinism and how Jesus really didn't die for everybody. It was very limited in who he died for, and, the, and it just never sat right with me, and you read this verse, and you're like, well, it says right here, it's very plain. He tasted death for every man, and the Holy Spirit just said, look into the book of life, and so I started looking into it, and it blew my mind, and this is, this is the answer to the whole issue So make sure your name is not blotted out of the book of life. Look at Psalm 69, 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Okay, that right there, for something to be blotted out, it has to be written there. The name has to be written there. So I can't blot out a verse in my Bible if it's not there, right? It has to be written. Same with an attendance sheet at school or at church or anything, if your name is not there, somebody can't mark it out. So right there alone, God is saying their name is written there. Look at Exodus 32. Yet now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not blot, this is Moses speaking, and if not blot me, I pray thee out of thy book which thou hast written. Even Moses knew this, the book of life. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Look at Revelation 3, 5, Jesus speaking. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed with white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. See, everyone's name is written there. And then Psalms 139, this is one of my favorites. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. That's where you were made. Did you know that? You were made in the lowest parts of the earth by the hands of God. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. So in his book, the book of life, before any members, any one of your members was actually born, your name was written there. Psalm 51 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. That's what he does when you get saved. When you get saved, your name is in the book of life, and he covers it in the blood of Jesus, and all of your transgressions in the other books that are in Revelation 21 and 22, they just get blotted out, all of them, every single one of them. He blots them out with the blood of the lamb, because it's white as snow, 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for a select few, no, it says for all, (laughs) just make sure you're awake, if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Look at 1 Timothy 4, for therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust In the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. So I love the end of First Timothy 4:10, because it means that He's a Savior for all men, even if you do not believe. The Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. It's like if you had a distant relative that bought a piece of property and you were the the inheritor of that piece of property. Okay, he bought it for you. He paid for it. And you get to reap that benefit if you accept it. And you could, you could go after the will before the judge and say, I want nothing to do with that property. I'm sorry. I, I don't want to accept my inheritance. Okay, especially for those that believe. Look at 1 Timothy 2.6. Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now, you could find passages like this all over the Bible. This is just a select few. For God so loved the world, John 3.16. Again, in the Greek... That word is cosmos, meaning all of the inhabitants of the world ever to live, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Everlasting means everlasting. And one of the things I love about our study through the book of Hebrews is that the whole point that God is driving at here is that you have an inheritance laid up. Once you're saved, you can't lose it. It's covered with the blood of Jesus. You did nothing to earn it or gain it. You can't do anything to lose it. The question is, and like Kelly mentioned in worship, what do you do with it then? From the Ten Commandments, did you take the Lord's name in vain? Did you take his name and do nothing with it? Take it in vain? That's the question. You don't want to do that. You want to take his name and run as hard as you can for the king because there is a future for you. In verse 10, so I hope that helps, but in verse 9, he tasted death for every man. Just think about that, and go home and pray about that, the book of life. It's amazing. If your name was written there, man, it should give you a sense of urgency to go out and to witness for your friends and your family members and your loved ones and your coworkers and those that you know who are written there, but they have not been traced over by the blood of Jesus. And there comes a point when they take their last breath, that he has no choice but to blot them out. Because it's not because he didn't offer it to them. It's because he can't have relationship with someone that does not appropriate the death of the son to themselves. He can't have fellowship with that. He can't be in the presence of sin. For whom are all things? Okay, so verse 10. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation. Perfect through sufferings. This reminds me of Colossians one, 17 through 20 for whom are all things. Look at Colossians one 17, and he is before all things and by him all things consist. Now remember in the Greek, it is the word that means are held together. They are bonded by him. And in verse 18, And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him and reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Now, that's really interesting. What would he need to reconcile in heaven there's a lot there's a deep study you could go through on that but that colossians 1:17 by him all things consist or are held together i've mentioned this a few times but really want to drive the point home if you're into engineering or science or anything just watch the modern scientific headlines as they start to study more quantum physics and quantum theory and the scientific findings coming out of the very the very edge of frontiers of science because a couple of years ago, maybe, maybe two years ago now, they discovered they've been looking for what in the world holds together every atom. right? Because of, you have these like electrons and protons spinning around this nucleus and like charges repel. So if you have two negative things right there, if they're trying to constantly go apart, what in the world holding them together? We know what happens when you split that bond. It's the greatest energy source on Earth that man's discovered, which is the nuclear bomb, right? You split that atom. One atom creates that explosion. And I'll never forget this. When I was reading this a couple years ago in this scientific journal, they discovered finally they've been f- trying to find what holds those atoms together. And it's the, they call them gluons because they don't know what else to call them. So they just call them gluons. And the scientists finally detected that it was sound waves, and it's one of my favorite scientific breakthroughs of the last couple of years that I've shared here before. But they found that it was sound waves holding them together. And then you go to Colossians 117 and you go, well, that's what the Bible has said all along. That by him, all things consist or are held together. So what they don't know is that they've actually discovered the voice of Jesus, which is holding together every single atom in the universe. Because in Genesis 1, remember, and God said, and God said, and in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so you have, you have science confirming the Bible. Every year they get closer and closer to realizing the Bible has said that all along, and they're just finally catching up. Now they call it, again, they don't attribute it to Jesus. They call it gluons or some made-up name, and, and how the sound waves got there. They don't even think that, well, sound has to have a source, so where was that source if they're still there, how is it holding together an atom? They don't even think about that. They just kind of move on. Okay, we found it. Sound waves. Cool. Move on. But I find it fascinating. So the end of this verse, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So the word captain here in the Greek is archeos. It means the chief leader, prince of Christ, one that takes the lead in anything and thus affords an example a predecessor in a matter, a pioneer, or the author. Now, that, that should ring a bell with he's the author and finisher of our faith. Okay, so he's the captain. He's the captain of their salvation. Now, that word in salvation there, Mary, we've been talking about through the book of Hebrews? The book of Hebrews has nothing to do with what it takes to be saved. It's not written to an unbeliever. It's written to a believer that is chasing after Jesus in their walk. And the three tenses of salvation, the justification, biblically, you're saved by the blood of Jesus and none other once and for all. Sanctification is the walk you are on after you're saved, where you are shedding all of the baggage that you may be carrying in your life and chasing after the Lord and laying that down, ultimately culminates in glorification where you are with Jesus Removed from the very presence of sin itself. So you have justification being removed from the penalty of sin, sanctification being removed from the power of sin in your life, so that you become more and more and more like Him. Ultimately, at the rapture or when you die, glorification, where you're removed from the very presence of sin forever. So, hear this word, the captain of their salvation. It's that last tense of salvation. It's glorification. So it's the future tense. And there, we looked at that definition a couple of weeks ago. And one thing I'll just, I'll mention that during worship, Randy saw this. Do you mind if I share this? No? Okay. R- Randy, the Lord was just talking to her during worship and just showed her a picture of the sanctification process of baggage. I mentioned baggage a second ago. And... And the visual of seeing someone come in with a bag, they're carrying all of these bags on them, but they're carrying a bag on their shoulder like this, where it's pressed up against their ear. And it's eliminating, remember what the the word says, he that hath an ear, let him hear. And it's Satan trying to enchain, keep you enchained so that you carry this baggage around, but it's affecting your hearing from God because you won't let go of it. And so think about that. And we talk about it all the time here, but if you've got something in your life after you've been saved that you are holding to, you have got to get in the throne room of the universe and lay that down at the foot of Jesus and let him literally reach down and take that yoke off your neck and just pull it off so that you can run free for him. That's, that's the goal. So the word for captain, it's used in three other places in the New Testament, Acts 3.15 and killed the prince, it's it's translated as prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. In Acts 5.31, him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 12.2 is the last place. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So you have the captain, that word captain, it's a very interesting word in the Greek. Verse 11, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Okay, John 17, I mentioned this a second ago, John 17 is the the Lord's Prayer, in a lot of ways. And it it is so rich. And I just thought we could read this real quick. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. See, here Jesus is finally admitting the time has come. When you study this all through the Gospels, there's so many times they try to grab him, they try to kill him, they try to take him, they try to exalt him. And he always slips away and makes a statement. The time has not yet come. Because he had to wait to the day that Daniel 9 predicted. With the 70 weeks of Daniel, he had a day that he had to ride in on the donkey. To the day that was all given to Daniel through through the angel, Gabriel. It's one of the most incredible prophecies in the whole Bible. But Daniel 9, those 69 weeks, okay, if you take 69 times 360... 360 days a year is what God always uses in the Bible. Okay, take 69 years times seven years per grouping times 360. It's 69 shabuyams or seven groupings, a grouping of seven years. And you multiply it all out, you get 173,880 days. And so from the time that the decree went forward to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince will be 173,880 days to the day. And that is the day that he rode in on the donkey into Jerusalem to present himself as king, as the, the Messiah, the Savior. And so it's, it all fulfills the Passover feast also, because on the 10th of Nisan, they had to inspect the lamb to see if it was without blemish. Well, that was the day he rode in on the donkey, was the 10th of Nisan. He was inspected to see if he had a blemish or not. Then four days later, he is crucified to fulfill Passover. But that's what he's saying here. My hours come. Because he had to fulfill the word of God exactly, to the day. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given me. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory of which I had with thee before the world was. It's amazing. Before the world even was. Remember, the angels cheered when the world was created, according to Job. I've manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me. Out of the world thine. they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. You should take immense joy and peace Right here, and that Jesus, he is not praying for the world. He's praying for you and me. He's praying for your children. He's not, he, yes, he did die for the world, but he is interceding on behalf of you right now. He is praying for you. And when you go down this whole, all of John 17, it's one of the most, again, it's just one of the most intimate verses and chapters in the whole Bible. And read that and just take immense comfort in it. But Jesus is Jesus going to call you brethren? You know, that's part of the question here. That word at the end of verse 11, call them brethren. This should remind you of the sheep and goat judgment from Matthew 25. We'll look at that at the end here. But look at Matthew 10. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. That is, that's a heavy statement from the creator of the entire universe. That if you're going to deny him, he's going to deny you before the father. You don't want that to happen. Jesus uses this word also in the sheep and goat judgment. Look at Matthew 25. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, insomuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Now remember the sheep and goat judgment. You have the... What triggers the 70th week of Daniel, we talked about that in Daniel 9 a minute ago, that final seven-year period given to Daniel, it's when the Antichrist affirms a covenant with Israel. That triggers the start of the final seven-year period that God is, it's the time of Jacob's trouble. The focus is all once again on Israel. The church is removed, the focus is on Israel. And the whole point is he's driving them to the brink of utter destruction to get them to admit that they missed him the first time when he rode in on the donkey. That's the point from Hosea 5.15, that I shall go, this is Jesus speaking, I shall go and return unto my place until they acknowledge their offense and their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. And that's Jesus saying, I'm going to leave my place, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised again, I'm going to return to it, and I'm going to sit there until... They, Israel, acknowledge their offense, and in that time of trouble, in the seven-year tribulation, in their affliction, they're going to seek me with much earnest, with much fervor. That's what he's saying. And at the end of that seven-year period, when we ride in with Jesus on those white horses in Revelation 19, and he vanquishes the enemies that have surrounded Jerusalem in the valley of Megiddo from Mount Megiddo, Armageddon, then he sets up a kingdom and Daniel's got a 70 Daniel 12 there's a 75 day interval that he Jesus is doing all kinds of things to set up the kingdom on the earth one of those is right there in Matthew 25 with the sheep and goat judgment so if you don't remember that from when we were studying Revelation go back and check that out but it's a it's a fruitful study it's amazing it all has to do with the nations during the 7 year t- tribulation period so in verse 12 saying I will de- declare Thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. So this is a quote from Psalm 22. So from Psalm 22, verse 22, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Now, it's amazing when you go all the way back to Psalms 22, right there, it's in the midst of the congregation. See, the church was hidden in the Old Testament, and so it couldn't be church But what congregation is he talking about? The Holy Spirit right here in verse 12 is interpreting it for you, that he's meaning the church. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. The church, it's always hidden in the Old Testament. And the reason is because if Satan had known what would happen when Jesus was killed, he would have never killed him. Because you have the greatest relationship with the Lord of any other person to ever walk the earth in humanity. And the reason is because the Holy Spirit endows you permanently. You are sealed by the Holy Ghost permanently. You are the temple right now. You're the vessel that carries the Holy Spirit around. All through the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go. And remember in Ezekiel 9, we're going to look at that Bible study this week. But Ezekiel 9, that glory lifts off the temple. So the glory wasn't inside people it came and went, and it occasionally would fall on someone for a time, but then it would leave. That's why David in Psalms is praying, God, take thy spirit not from me, because he wanted it permanently. You have that incredible, incredible endowment from the Lord that you get to walk with the same Holy Spirit that brooded over the waters of the earth in Genesis 1, verse 2, verse 3. And that it lives inside of you. It is such an incredible privilege. P- privilege, excuse me. Look at Psalm 22, though. This is all. It's Jesus speaking, first person from the cross, and it opens up. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, O oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. Okay, all of Psalm 22 is Jesus speaking, first-person singular, from the cross. Now, there's one amazing thing. I'm going to read just a few more of these verses. They're not in your notes, but you can read along with me. Psalm 22. There's some amazing insights here. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in in thee and were not confounded. Look at verse 6, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. Okay, that word in the Hebrew in verse 6 is tola. It's a worm that it's where in Israel and in the Middle East, it's the special worm where they get the dye that makes scarlet thread. And what this worm would do is it would crawl up onto a branch, it would give birth to children, and then it would die and form a cocoon around the babies and guard them. And when it would die, there would be a spot on the tree that would be be red. And the the babies would feast on the body of the mother, the death of the mother, or that worm, and then come out and go live a life because they were redeemed and saved. Well, after three days, that little scarlet crimson spot on the tree would turn into bright white, and it would just flake away. And it's amazing how Jesus is comparing himself right here to that worm because he's going to die for everybody— go in the tomb for three days, and then it's going to be white as snow from the resurrection. And all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, he trusted, remember them on the cross, they're totally mocking him. He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb, Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. In verse 12, many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. Now, this is Jesus looking into the other side, the spiritual side of what's happening on the cross. The bulls of Bashan is a reference to the demonic presence from the fallen angels that were all rooted in Mount Hermon and around the Bashan area. Remember Moses fought the king of Bashan? Just track down Bashan through the Bible. It's a demonic stronghold. And the bulls of Bashan right here, Jesus has seen. Can you imagine Satan and all of his demons thinking they won? You know, at that moment on the cross. And he's seen that interdimensional veil of all of them surrounding him, mocking him and scorning him, saying, where is your God? Where is he? Look at you, you're hanging on a cross dying. And little did they know, little did they know. So in verse 13, and again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. So this is a reference back to Isaiah 18, verses 17 through 18. And I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me, are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. So, again, the church is hidden here in the Old Testament, but here in Isaiah, the Lord's referring to Jesus and his children in the church. See, the whole relationship with the church, you are to be a sign and a wonder, not only for the world, but for Israel, because they totally blew it when he showed up the first time. So, has has the church been a sign and a wonder to Israel? You know, or have you, we just looked like the world? And really think about that. For my entire life, a lot of, in a lot of ways, the church has looked no different than the world. And I remember thinking growing up, I'd sit in church with all these people on Sundays, and then you'd watch the rest of the week, and it just looks like they're, you would never know right that they were walking with the Lord in a lot of ways. And that's not a dig on anybody. It's just the enemy will will entrap you into thinking, okay, that's a Sunday thing. Check the box and then go live your life because he wants you to be comfortable not living and chasing after Jesus, the Messiah. And have we taken for granted the power and authority our kings gifted us like Israel did? Israel was supposed to be the most peculiar people on planet earth to point to the Lord. That's what Deuteronomy and, and Leviticus and Numbers, it's all of those books. It's all about the Lord keeps saying, you were to be a peculiar people, peculiar in terms of different from the world. You were not to look like the world. You were to look different so that all of these pagan nations that worshiped fallen angels and false gods surrounding them would see a difference in Israel. But they didn't because Israel just worshiped the same gods. And in a lot of ways, for many decades, the church has done the same thing in worshiping the gods of the world and not Jehovah. Verse 14: For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. So Jesus had to come in the flesh, he had to come in the flesh and this is a point all throughout the Bible, but he had to come in the, as flesh and blood to take part in the death we were due. Remember Romans 6, 6.23? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, you were on a auction block. You were due and served death, a death sentence. And there was only one that could come forward and pay that in full on your behalf. And when he did... He bought you off that auction block, and you had the chance then to become a son of God and to run free. We talked about that last week. Why you must be born again is because you've got to become a son of God, not a son of Adam or son of man. So he had to become a man to pay those wages on our behalf, so sin was paid in full. He is our kinsman redeemer, and through death, Jesus destroyed the devil So the word right there, he might destroy that phrase at the end of verse 14. In the Greek, it means to render idle, inactive, inoperative, to cause a person or thing, to have no further efficiency, to deprive of force, influence, or power, to cause, to cease. And I love that, that he took the power and the influence of the devil, and he took it, and he conquered it. And when he conquered it, the, ch- the question is then, you don't have to be a slave to the devil anymore. You have a choice at that point to serve sin or life. And too many people, after they get saved, still choose to serve sin. Because they don't realize the power of the Holy Spirit endowing them that gives them the option to say, I'm not a slave to that anymore. And I love how my father-in-law put it when he spoke here a couple weeks ago, but he said everything satan satan does not want to give you a choice anything that you can become addicted to will kill you and he doesn't give you a choice in that he wants you enchained in that but that's the point jesus conquered that on your behalf from verse 14 so in verse 15 and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage okay there is power in describing an incoming judgment And some do not accept Jesus and get saved because they don't even know what they're trying to be saved from, frankly. It's an amazing paradigm where people, you have all of these lost people all over the world. And if they truly knew the gravity of what they are saved from, they would run in hordes to the feet of Jesus. But the church doesn't describe it anymore. Right? It's... it's, Yes, you can save some by preaching salvation and righteousness and all the good side of it, right? The the beautiful side of what Jesus did for us. But some you have to save by going the other way and showing them what they're saved from. And that's what Jude, verses 20 through 25, talks about. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of, of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and of some have compassion making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. See, some you have to save by fear. They have to know what did he die for to save me from. A lot of people don't recognize what eternity really means. You cannot imagine an eternity where you are taken outside of time, its very self, because it is a physical property that, that is a variable of mass, gravity, and acceleration. When you are taken outside of that, your spirit, the real you, has no mass, and thus time, you are not constrained to it. And so when you're taken outside of that, an eternity that never ends without Jesus, and all that comes with that, you cannot even imagine the torment of what that would be like, to not be able to breathe, to have no water, to have no blood, because the life is in the blood. There's no life there. You go down that whole list of everything that Jesus provides right now, and it's, it's frightening. It should make a difference to a lot of people. But in others, save with fear. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, praise God, he's the one that's able to keep you, and to prevent you fault, present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So Jude talks a lot about that. Verse 16, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So the genealogy of Jesus is predicted throughout the Old Testament. And it's actually encrypted in Genesis 38. This whole, the whole issue with Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38, 6, and Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. Now, when you're reading Genesis 38, you, it's a weird chapter that's right in the middle of the story of the children of Israel and then Joseph in Egypt. And there's this weird story right there in the middle of chapter 38 that's all about Jacob's son Judah and Judah's son Ur and him having a wife named Tamar and there's a law in the old testament that if your husband died the next of kin was to take you as spouse as wife and be and fulfill the role of the kinsman redeemer that was the point point. and in verse thirty-eight fourteen, so er her husband ur dies well judah does not give tamar the next of kin his next son to be her husband and she realizes this for she saw that Selah was grown and, that, and she was not given unto him to wife. Okay, so she sees this. So she sets Judah up, basically. She prostitutes herself out, and they have an illegitimate child named Ferez. And it's a weird story when you're reading through it. Tamar conceives twins, and one of them is named Perez, for the breach was upon him as Zara was to be the firstborn. And that's all in Genesis 38, the end. Well, then you're looking at it, you're going, well, what does this have to do? Why is this even here? Well, you get to Ruth, and it all makes sense. Ruth 4, verses 11 through 12. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that has come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephraim and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Phares, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord will give thee of this young woman. So if you remember back to Genesis 38, remember Judah denies the whole thing, and Tamar shows up with his staff and his signet ring and says, Whosoever is this is the one that is the father of these babies, of these twins. And so Judah knows he's caught, and there's that whole story unfolds. Well, Phares is actually in the lineage of Jesus. And that's why this story is here. And at Ruth's wedding with Boaz, Boaz is a type of the kinsman redeemer that Jesus is to us. Someone at the wedding says, and may your house be like Perez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah. It's a prophetic statement from those individuals moved by God to announce the lineage of Jesus. Because go down to verse 17. And the women, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, "There's a son born to Naomi," and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Even point, the Holy Spirit is, is <laughs> he is like highlighting this for you. Go look into Perez. These are the generations of Perez. Perez begot Haran, and Haran begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot. Nishan and Nishan begot Salmon and Salmon begot Boaz. Remember, Boaz is the kinsman redeemer that marries Ruth and begot Obed. And Obed begot Jesse and Jesse begot David. So there you have that lineage going all the way down to Jesus from Perez through Obed, Jesse. And in Genesis 38, actually, that genealogy is encrypted in the Hebrew. If you go on 49 letter intervals, it spells out Obed, Jesse, David, all in order throughout chapter 38, which is pretty cool. But the kinsman redeemer, you know, a lot of it is he had to become a man. And why? Because you go to Revelation 5, remember the th- we're in the throne room of the universe, and in Revelation 5, we are looking, the Father's holding that double-sided scroll, and John says, and I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. See, they're looking for a man, No man was found worthy, and they look in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. They look in three spots for a man who's worthy to come forward and to take that scroll. And one of the elders, he's weeping, convulsing, because no man's found worthy. And one of the elders, that's one of us, the church, saith unto him, unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book, and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, all authority, which are the seven spirits of God from Isaiah eleven two, That's the sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit sent forth into all the earth. See, they're looking for a man. It had to be a man, a kinsman redeemer. And when you go back to Ruth, when you study that, Boaz is a type of the kinsman redeemer who marries a Gentile bride by the law of the Leverite marriage. And in response to marrying a Gentile bride, Naomi, a type of Israel, gets her land back. So it's a it's a whole thing as a model of the church, Jesus marrying the bride, and in the process, Israel being restored to her land. But it had to be a man. It had to be a man to take back what Adam lost in the very beginning. So the last two verses here, verse 17 Wherefore, in all things it, beho- it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that they might be a- that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So later in he- Hebrews, we'll learn a lot about Jesus as our high priest. That starts around chapter five. The phrase to make reconciliation for in the Greek it literally means to render oneself to appease to. To become, or I'm sorry, to become propitious, to be placed or appeased, to be propitious, to be gracious, merciful, to expiate or to make propitiation for. In other words, he paid it all. He made reconciliation for the sins of the people. So in verse 18, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he's able to secure them that are tempted. So he endured everything that we must endure. Right. He was tempted. The phrase to secure in the Greek, it means to help or to bring aid. And ultimately, because he suffered being tested, he's able to help or bring aid to those that are tested. And that's the encouragement for us as it closes out chapter 2. Okay, so that's the end of Hebrews chapter 2. And as always, we'll just close with this, this call to action that I just love so much. You know, with everything that's going on in the world right now, I hope all of you are praying for those over in the in Russia and Ukraine and the Middle East. Iran is launching missiles at Israeli posts in Iraq now and trying to hit U.S. military installations. Things are spiraling quickly, and that's exactly what Jesus meant when he said, Behold, these things will all come to pass once they begin. When he says, Behold, shor- they'll shortly come to pass. That word is where we get in the Greek. It's where we get our word tachometer, meaning... Once they start, they happen very, very rapidly. And you almost can't keep up in the headlines now. There's so much biblically going on in the world. But it's time really for the church as a response to everything. You should be a student of the Bible so that when you read the, the headlines today, you can hold your Bible up and filter everything through that. Because if you can do that, then you can really see what's going on not what the news says it's going on, not what you read in the newspaper, not some, you know, thread on a on a social media post or something. You've got to stay grounded in the truth. This is the only source of truth we have on planet Earth because Jesus is the truth and he is the word of God. So you've got to be in the truth to see what's really going on. And so how do you do that? Well, You've gotta learn the weapons of our warfare. So what is faith? Hebrews 11, 1. faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. That's what it is. The substance of all that we hope for is Jesus. And the evidence of what you don't see right now is that he will set up a kingdom and rule and reign on this earth. Now you see the evidence leading up to it if you're biblically astute and a student of the word of God, but you don't see that kingdom yet. Just like Abraham, so when we get to chapter 11, you'll learn that Abraham walked around looking for a city whose maker was God, not whose foundation was laid by man. Abraham wandered the earth looking for the new Jerusalem. That's incredible. That is incredible. So why is faith important? Hebrews 11, 6. For without faith, it's impossible to please him. So you can't please God unless you have faith. So how do you get it? Romans ten seventeen: Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God so the word of God is the only way to build up your faith and you need to do it daily from Acts 17 11. search the scriptures daily you know everything that you hear here everything you hear somebody else say you've got to be able to be in the word of God yourself and prove that it is so don't just leave and believe it because I said it or Mason said it or Kelly said it or Chris said it you've got to take it to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit be your teacher that's the point from 1 John 2 27. So run that you may obtain. You've got to have the word of God so that you can run, that you can run strong. Okay, in the next one, if you remember, I've been talking about this a lot. I just I love this visual because I hope it I hope it impacts all of you. When the children of Israel crossed the Jordan, there were some areas that God told them to wipe everybody out that they didn't listen, and they did not uproot that enemy that was rooted there, That whether it was, you could apply it today spiritually, bitterness, anger, anything, greed, go into something that could root in your life. They didn't fully uproot it. In 2 Corinthians 10.3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, those strongholds that you're carrying. In Numbers 33, this was predicted though, But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your side. See, God was predicting that right there, that there would be a whole group of them that they would just let stay and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. So again, the challenge question for everybody as we're walking with the Lord, what stronghold in your life has God told you to eradicate, and is it completely destroyed? That's the question. Because if it's not, it will be this gigantic yoke that you were not made to carry. And you'll walk constantly, constantly being drugged down by the enemy. So you cannot stand against your enemy when you've got something accursed in your life from Joshua 7. Remember, they had this accursed thing, and thus they were destroyed by the enemies. You are in a warfare that Satan wants to kill you. We talked about this before. Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy. You are in a warfare where you are not only fighting just to survive, you're fighting for life and death. And if you don't know the word of God, if you're not in it and you're carrying something accursed in your life, you are susceptible to being taken out by the enemy. Not to lose your salvation, but to be totally useless for the kingdom. And you don't want that to happen. So keep pressing on. If you remember, the Lord showed this to me again this week in Joshua 22. But remember, as they're about to cross the Jordan, there's two and a half tribes of the 13 that wanted their inheritance east of the Jordan. Gad, the half tribe of Manasseh, Reuben, and Gad. So you had these two and a half tribes. It was about 20% of God's people that did not want to go on into the promised land that he had in store for them all along. They were content where they were they wanted that inheritance east of the jordan well it was easier you know the enemies are already conquered there i can just stay there i'll be comfortable with what i'm living with and that's not what god wants for you as you're walking with him don't be content accepting your inheritance east of the jordan i want you guys to have an urgency to press on into the greater inheritance and the rest that Jesus wants to offer you in the promised land. Do not stay idly back and be content just to look from the outside. Okay, if you're here, if, if you're watching online and you don't know the Lord, you need to get born again. And how do you do that? Romans 10, nine, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's, it is that simple. And so we are pleading with you. If you're here, if you're watching online, if you're watching this later, please, if you don't know Jesus, get born again. Get baptized by the Holy Ghost into the death, burial, and resurrection of our Messiah. And then after that, ask Jesus to baptize you in the Holy Spirit from Acts. And you'll walk in all of that authority. So in Isaiah 118, come down, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That's what happens. All those sins in that other book get blotted out. So with that, I'll close us in prayer. Uh, you guys, please keep, keep the, the church over in Russia and Ukraine in your prayers. There are, no matter what's happening again, there are a lot of people over there being displaced, children on the run, parents t- grabbing their children, trying to flee for security and safety somewhere. And God has his hand on that situation. He's not going to sit by idly for long. Something is happening over there, a move of the Spirit that could be radical in the end of this. So pray for those people. And it's not that I had this question last week from someone. It's not that we shouldn't be praying for the lost that are over there. I'm just sharing with you the burden that God placed on me when all this happened. He, he made it very clear that his church needs prayer over there. Those, there are people that are your brothers and sisters that need prayer. And yes, absolutely pray for the lost. Pray however the Holy Spirit leads you to pray for those people over there. But I just want to encourage you that there are people that are your brethren that are running for their lives and have no idea where there's an end in sight. They don't know what's happening next. They can't get connected with loved ones. Some of them are displaced from their children and have no clue where their kids are. It's, it's a horrible thing. But if we pray and we join them, some great can come out of this. And so that's... That's what I would encourage you to do. Lord, we just thank you so much for this time together. God, we thank you for the book of Hebrews. Again, thank you for chapter two. Lord, we thank you that you, out of complete obedience to Jesus, came and tasted death for every man. And so, Lord, if there are any out there that are hearing this that don't know you, Lord, we went through all of the verses, a lot of the verses. And Lord, from 2 Peter, you say that your will is is that none should perish, but all should come to everlasting life. Lord, we know that's your will, that all should be saved. And Lord, from 1 John 5, anything we pray in the will of the Father, you hear us from heaven and we have the complete confidence that you will act and move on behalf of that prayer. And so God, by praying for people's salvation, we literally are praying your will and we have the complete confidence that you will move and act on it for your word declares it. And so, God, we lift up those people that are lost right now, those people all over the world that are looking at what's going on and being taken by the enemy, the spirit of fear, the spirit of anxiety, the spirit of intimidation. Lord, I pray right now that you would break those chains of bondage, that the spirit of fear would have no claim on your people. It would have no claim on those that are saying right now that they are giving their lives to you. Let that spirit flee from their presence and let them walk in boldness and confidence that we can see what's going on in the world. And as you promised us in Luke, Lord, to look up. When you see these things begin to pass, look up for your redemption draws nigh. Lord, you are coming to get your bride soon. You're coming to gather your church to you soon. And we look longingly for that moment. But until then, we will occupy. And God, we pray for those that are in you in Ukraine and Russia. Lord, those that are in you all over the world that are suffering immense persecution. Lord, those in Europe that can't even post a Bible verse without being put on trial for hate speech. Those in Canada, those pastors that are being arrested for opening their doors to your people. Lord, we love you so much. Just be with your children. Move by your spirit. God, release those chains over Australia New Zealand. Let your people run free again. Lord, let your church move in this world one more time, God. Let the true body of Christ rise up. And take this fight back to the enemy. We have given up too much ground. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the boldness and the truth of your word to stand on. And we love you and we thank you for it, God. In Jesus' name we pray and ask all of these things. Amen.